Y'all glad to be here this morning? Me too. (laughs) 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead. Descendant of David. According to my gospel. For which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. It is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. For He cannot deny Himself. Father, just bless this time. Bless the teaching of Your Word. We pray not a single word spoken by Your Spirit into our hearts this morning would be dropped or forgotten or lost. Lord, any other words, it's fine if we forget. But we pray we would not forget Your Word to us today. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I don't know if you have watched it this year or not, but I need to ask this question. Do you remember Uncle Billy? Do you remember Uncle Billy? (laughs) That lovable but flaky and forgetful character in It's a Wonderful Life. You know the one I'm talking about if you've seen it. And if you haven't seen A Wonderful Life, that's your homework this holiday season. Uncle Billy, he shares the Bailey building and loan in the fictional small town of Bedford Falls, New York. Shares it with his brother until his brother passes away and then shares it with his nephew, the protagonist, George Bailey. Uncle Billy, do you remember Uncle Billy? See, he has trouble remembering. He constantly in the movie goes around with strings tied onto his fingers to try and recall what he needs to recall and ultimately his misplacement of 8,000 bucks causes the crisis point in the whole story. Do you remember Uncle Billy? And I can answer the question for all of us, whether you've seen the movie or not, no, you can't. And no, you don't. I could ask another question. Do you remember George Washington? No. Do you remember Martha Washington? No. The reality is you might be able to recall historical figures or fictional figures. You might have some information about them. You may remember their story, even be able to quote quotable lines. But to remember someone, you have to know them. To really remember someone, remember Jesus Christ. That is a huge statement. That is a faith-defining statement. I mean, you may be able to say, well, yeah, I've heard that He's the Messiah of Israel. Psalm chapter 2, verse 2. Or the desire of nations. Haggai chapter 2, verse 7. He's the light of the world, so I've been told Isaiah 49, verse 6. And you may even have read in Isaiah 9, verse 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. You may know all of that, but Paul says, remember Jesus Christ. That's intense. 
You remember people in relationship. You remember people you know. People you have lived life with. People you have talked to. People you have shared yourself with. Paul says, remember Jesus Christ. Again, that is so intense and marvelous and wonderful. What does he mean? Remember Jesus Christ. Well, the word remember, you can take a look at that. In the Greek, it's mene monuo. And it's where we get our word mnemonic. Spelled with an M first. Mnemonic. It's, it's a memory device. A mnemonic device is something we use to remember things. It could be a string on a finger. A post-it note. A smartphone alert. You know, these are, these are things that help us to remember something we need to do or, or some uh, event in our life, some appointment we have. But mene monuo, as a word, literally means keep in mind. Be mindful of, I would put it this way, to remember Jesus Christ is to have a mind full of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. Paul could remember Jesus. I mean, he'd interacted with him, right? Not just on the Damascus Road, by the way. Paul had several encounters with Jesus. And I believe, based on scriptural evidence, that Paul was hand-trained by Jesus. Spent time with Jesus before ultimately launching on his public ministry. That will remain to be seen when we see Paul. We can ask him, how much time did you actually spend with the Lord? But we know there are various encounters Paul had with Jesus. So when he says, remember Jesus, we know that he does. Literally. As you would remember anybody. If you ask me, Rick, do you remember your grandmother Irene? I'd say, oh, very well. She passed away in 1999, but I remember her because I spent a lot of life with her. Do you remember friends and family and loved ones and those who have gone before? Well, Paul saying, remember Jesus Christ, Paul could say, I remember Jesus. Don't you? Because Paul had interacted with him. Now, I'm not sure though, does that give Paul the right to blame Jesus for his imprisonment? For all of his troubles, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. Oh yeah, I remember Jesus. (laughs) What is Paul saying here? You know, it's funny, people who don't know Jesus blame him. People who have no relationship with God whatsoever blame him. In fact, I think it's often easier to blame someone you don't know. But here Paul says, I'm in prison for remembering Jesus and for telling people about Him. And I love Paul's attitude. Please understand when he says, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, in verse 9, he's not blaming Jesus. He is naming Jesus. Jesus is the reason I'm here. It's not though I'm in chains because He's forgotten me. It's I'm in chains because I can't forget Him. Because I keep remembering Him. He continues to come up in every conversation. I remember Jesus. And so whatever happens in my life, I can't help because I just keep remembering Him. Paul had a mindful of Jesus. And Paul knows something else as well. I love the end of verse 9. 
But the Word of God is not imprisoned. Beautiful. You can chain me up, but you can't shut Him down. You can put me behind bars, but I will continue to speak. And the Word will continue to go out. And the implication of this section is Paul is not just saying, I'm imprisoned here, but others are spreading the Gospel. Paul is implying that his imprisonment is of use to the spreading of the Gospel. That his very chains are being and would be used by God to further the message which cannot be chained up. And he was right. As we've been saying every week now since we opened Second Timothy, Paul's letters have continued for 2,000 years. Paul's voice continues to be heard, heard, inspired by the Spirit. And all he's saying all these many years and down through time, remember Jesus Christ. I remember Jesus. Paul's voice rises like a clarion bell from a dungeon cell all the way across to Ephesus where Timothy was and all the way across the centuries commanding that we remember Jesus Christ. Verse 10 he says, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are the chosen. The electos, by the way, in the Greek. So that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Now, Paul is not a Calvinist. And what I mean by that is the whole idea of Calvinism and the elect and the church being elect, well, that came out much, much later. Paul wasn't influenced by that theology. When Paul said, the chosen, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, Paul had a very clear understanding of what chosen meant. Of what the electos, the elect, what that spoke of. Paul, steeped in and raised in Judaism, understood the elect was the chosen one's Israel. That would always be in the mentality of Paul. They were, they are the chosen. But, but Paul, remember, Romans 11 would state that if you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are grafted into Israel. Therefore, guess what? The church is the elect as well. Part of now the chosen of God, having been grafted into the promises, we're part of it. So, yes, if you want to say the church is the elect, I say absolutely. Not in lieu of or, or opposed to Israel, but in addition to alongside, grafted into Israel. And that's what Paul is referring to when he talks about the chosen. And what he's saying is that God has chosen for all those who choose Him to obtain salvation. In Christ Jesus, and note this, with eternal glory. Man, I don't deserve glory. I just don't deserve glory. But it's promised because if you're in Jesus, He is glorified and it's going to get on you. You will experience glory because of His glory. And where God is concerned, that eternal glory was secured because Jesus did something unforgettable. Oh, we're called, we're commanded, we're told, remember Jesus Christ. But God will never forget what Jesus did at Calvary. The remembrance of that, it covers eternity that we might enter in with Jesus and be with Jesus and experience the glory 
of Jesus. And that, my friends, is unforgettable. But I want to go back this morning and spend some time unpacking verse 8. Because the, the depth, the riches of what Paul writes in this single verse need to be embraced, at least heard by every one of us. He says again, remember Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. This is the good news, condensed and concentrated. I mean, power-packed into one verse full of the profound truth that makes for our faith. It's all here in this verse. It's huge. The condensed, the concentrated gospel. It's like I shared with our shepherds the other night. It's like Roundup, only in a good way. You know, Roundup kills things. Well, this gives life. But you know how you can buy, most of you know, you can buy Roundup. It's the weed killer. Roundup concentrate. You take two ounces of Roundup, you put it in a gallon of water, and it does the job. It kills the weeds. Well, you take just one verse... And put it in the heart, and this explodes with meaning. It is pervasive. Paul is saying some remarkable truths. And note this, he begins in the imperative. Remember Jesus Christ isn't just a nice saying for a Christmas card. Remember Jesus Christ is the imperative form of the word. It is a command if you would follow Jesus. If you want to be one of His, remember Jesus Christ, in all things, remember Him. So he gives this one imperative, which he'll follow with two certainties, and then finally with an attitude that establish and maintain our memory of our Lord Jesus, of the Messiah. So let's note these. Follow these through. If you're a note taker, you can just follow the verse. It's easy. Number one, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Risen from the dead. Brothers and sisters, this is the axis of Christianity. It is the hinge of the whole thing. As Paul says, turn over in your Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Just go left a couple of books. 1 Corinthians 15. Without the fact that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, forget the rest of it. I will tell you right now, if you cannot believe that Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead, you're wasting your time. That's the hinge. Not only of this gathering or of Christians in general, it's the hinge of faith. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, Paul says, Romans 10.9. The resurrection... Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 13, Paul says, But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that He raised Christ. Who he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. My preaching to you this morning would be a bold-faced lie if Jesus Christ wasn't raised. If he hadn't resurrected. But I know he did. How do you know that, Rick? Because I remember Jesus Christ. Because I know him. Paul goes on and says, 
Verse 16, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. Remember them? If Jesus didn't resurrect, neither will they. And then he says, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are fallen asleep. What a great turn there that Paul makes. He takes you down to a place of near despair. If Jesus hasn't been raised, it's over. We are done. And on top of that, absolutely pathetic. But Christ has been raised. What are we even talking about here? Christ is risen from the dead. Amen? Amen. He is alive today. Amen? Amen. And that is the, the heart of our faith. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. If He hadn't risen from the dead, you could not remember Him. You could know some things about Him. You could study the life that He lived. You could read His teachings. You could be impressed even by some of His miracles. How did He pull those things off? But if He didn't raise from the dead, you could not remember Jesus Christ. Is there any cell darker than a tomb? Any prison more permanent than a grave? Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead and regardless, listen, regardless of your situation, regardless of how confining you may feel like your life is in this moment, you're going to hear the cell keys rattling for your imminent release. Because He rose from the dead, so will you. Now other people in history have been risen from the dead. They've been raised up, that is, but right back into the old life. What a bummer. Can you even imagine that? You brought me back to this? Really? Lazarus? Hallelujah, I'm alive! And oh, my back is still aching. Same old body, same old problems. Others were raised to life. Only Jesus was raised from the dead to the new, eternal, glorified body. Perfect for all eternity, the God-man. John chapter 2, verse 18, the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us your authority as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered and said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And John tells us very clearly he was talking about the temple of his body. In John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And that was Jesus' question. Hey, I am the resurrection. So remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Secondly, remember Jesus Christ, descendant of David. Just as risen from the dead indicates His divinity, because it's something only God could do. Only God raised Himself from the dead. No human being has ever done that. But just as that speaks of his divinity, guess what? Descendant of David speaks of his humanity. That's a radical statement. Risen from the dead, descendant of David. God and man. And Jesus is both. 
And that's huge. You know we can actually connect his direct lineage? In fact, turn your Bibles back to Luke chapter 3 for a moment. Luke chapter 3. Again, back to the left. Among the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke chapter 3, verse 23. And if you want to take the time to do it, you can. I'd encourage you not this morning because you're going to miss a couple of things. But verse 23 all the way down through verse 38 is the human lineage of Jesus Christ. In fact, what Luke does is he traces all the way back from Jesus to Adam. Running that line, running that that genealogy, if you will. And it's a fascinating genealogy to study. We've looked at it uh, in the past. And you Bible students know... This genealogy here in Luke chapter 3, you almost kind of wish, at least on the surface, that it was the only one we had in the Gospels, because then we wouldn't have any problem. We could say, well, this this is the one, that's it. Well, Matthew had to go and write one too. And Matthew chapter 1, if you've read it, you know is different than Luke chapter 3. Oh, the critics of Scripture, they jump on this immediately. It's different. Two genealogies, therefore a contradiction. And I would say no, a clarification. It's not a contradiction at all. Matthew runs the line of Joseph. Looking at Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, he runs the line of Joseph, Jesus' legal father, though not his biological father. So if you want to follow the genealogy, and you can do this in my life, follow the genealogy of my father and it will take you back into Texas. Ultimately before that, back you know, into Europe somewhere, Scotland actually. You could also follow the genealogical line of my mother, which would take you into Tennessee. And going back further than that. So two different lines, same person here. It's not a contradiction, but it's clarifying where I came from. Matthew, again, the the legal line of Joseph, Jesus' well, adopted father, if you will. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 says the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. So in reality, Joseph had nothing to do with the birth of Christ. He was there, but he had no greater role in that moment than the shepherds. You know, he was just there. It was the Spirit who fathered Jesus. Luke traces Mary's family tree, which is the reason for the contradiction, the reason why the two genealogies are slightly different. But if you look just at verse 23, note this, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. And then he continues on down the line, the son of Eli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son... Wait, wait a minute. But that's not what it says. And I would encourage you to take a black pen and mark through two words in verse 23, and that is at the end of verse 23, the son of, because it's not there. What are you saying? It should read like this. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, of Eli. Why doesn't he say the son of Eli? Because Jesus wasn't the son of Eli, he was the grandson of Eli. Do you understand? Eli was Mary's father. 
Not Jesus' father, Jesus' grandfather. So he was of Eli, which is what you would say of a grandson. He was of Eli, who was the son of Matat, who was the son of Levi, who was the son of Melchi, who was the son of Janai, and on down, each one being the son of the one prior to them. So the language is very clear. If you're hearing it in the Greek, you understand Joseph was supposed to be, or or was believed by some to be, who were on the outside, who didn't know about the miracle. Well, he was thought to be Jesus' father, but... Joseph was also not the son of Eli. Jesus was of Eli, of the line of Eli, which again would be the line of Mary. Eli being Mary's father. Now, this is huge. This is absolutely huge. See, through the line of Joseph, if we track Joseph, Matthew's genealogy, all the way back, we get to David's son, Solomon. Yeah, David... Then Solomon, remember we're talking about the descendant of David, so Jesus must be descendant of David. And that genealogy in Matthew goes all the way back to David, but through Joseph and to Solomon. And that line automatically gave Jesus the legal right to the throne in Israel. Because he was a son of David. So legally speaking, he would have the right, like any son in that genealogical line, he would have the right legally to rise to the throne. However, and you Bible students know this as well, this particular line from David to Solomon and on down ended up cursed by God through a man named Jeconiah or Coniah. It's called the curse of Coniah. Jeremiah 22, verse 24. You just stay there in Luke chapter 3 a minute. Jeremiah 22, 24. As I live, declares the Lord, even though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, wore wore a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off. God is mad at Jeconiah. And then in verse 30 of Jeremiah 22, thus says the Lord, write this man down childless. A man who will not prosper in his days. For no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. What I'm saying is this. Coniah was not childless. He had sons. He had to. Why? Because he's in the genealogical line that goes all the way down to Joseph. But from Coniah forward, none of his sons in that line could ever rise legally to the throne in Israel because God cursed the line. No more. No one of this lineage can be on the throne. And had Joseph of the line of Coniah been the biological father of Jesus, his ascendancy to the throne of Israel would have been over before he was born. Isn't God marvelous? He just bypassed the whole thing. The Holy Spirit caused Mary to be with child, bypassing Joseph. Mary's line was fine. Mary's line was not problematic. Matthew 1.16 tells us Joseph was the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born. Not by Joseph, but by Mary, who is called Messiah. Now look at verse 31 of Luke chapter 3. And you see the son of Malia, the son of Minya, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. See, there's the bypass right there. 
David had a son named Solomon, but ultimately Jeconiah was in that line, and that line got cursed. So you couldn't trace back to Solomon and rise to the throne. But by David's son Nathan, the line runs all the way down to Mary, and the throne is secure, and Jesus has every right legally through Joseph and biologically through Mary to be king over all Israel. Isn't that marvelous? So the curse of Keniah does not apply. Why does that matter? Hold that thought. Descendant of David. Just hold that thought for a moment because I want to say something else and then come back to it. Paul, what he does here back in, in uh, 2 Timothy 2.8. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, descendant of David. What he does is round out these two certainties. That is that he was risen and that he was descendant of David. He rounds out the two certainties with an attitude according to my gospel. It's one of the best things Paul ever said. He didn't say it a lot. In fact, he only said it three times in all of his many letters. Back in Romans 2.16, he says, According to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. In Romans 16.25, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. My gospel, my gospel, writing to Rome, and now sitting in a Roman cell, we hear Paul's heart proclaiming and owning, this is my gospel. According to my gospel. He's not saying I made it up. He's saying I keep it. I own it. I possess it. This is my good news. Can you say that? Do you talk about the gospel or do you talk about your gospel? My gospel. This is the good news that saved my life. That changed me forever. That allows me to remember Jesus Christ. This is my good news. Whatever happens with y'all, this is my good news. And I keep it. My gospel. It's like when people say, hey, I like going to your church. Well, clearly you haven't chosen to be part of this fellowship yet. Because the moment you shift into being part of the Bridge Christian Fellowship, you call it my church. Because it matters to you. Now this is personal. Is this your gospel? When you talk about it with others, do you say, hey, let me tell you about my gospel. Hey, I've got good news. I've got to share with you. This is my good news. Paul calls it my gospel. Now, buckle up. It's prophecy time. We've got to go back to descendant of David and consider something else. Descendant of David is literally David's seed. Anytime you see the word descendant in the New Testament, it's the word seed. It's, it's spermos in the Greek. So graphically, it is tracing a line, a genealogical, a genealogical line. It is the seed of those who have gone before. And as we read descendant of David, something pinged in my heart when I saw that. And it was a memory. I remembered another prayer, if you will. Another imperative. And I think as I look at this that Paul had this in mind. I can't prove this, but I think he had another imperative prayer in mind. A psalm from the old days. A thousand years, literally 900 years before Paul's day. And in that case, that psalm, which yes, we're going to look at, In the psalm, the Lord is being asked to remember David. Turn to Psalm 132. 
Psalm 132. You know the Psalms are also, many of them, prophecies. The Bible even refers to the Psalms and the prophets because among the Psalms of David and others, there is so much prophecy that if we didn't have the Psalms, we would miss half the story. And these prophecies are remarkable, and Psalm 132 is no exception to that. Follow it through with me. Psalm 132, verse 1. Remember, O Lord, on David's behalf, all his affliction. Literally translated, it should say, Remember David. Remember David, O Lord, for all his affliction. So here, the psalmist writes, Remember David. It's not David writing this. That would be a little weird. Remember David. Just as Paul in 2 Timothy 2.8 says, Remember Jesus Christ. And there's a reason why I'm connecting these two. Verse 2. Remember how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the Mighty One of Jacob. Surely I will not enter my house nor lie on my head, on my bed. Don't lie on your head either, David. That would be uncomfortable. I will not enter my house nor lie on my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the Mighty One of Jacob. David had gotten so personal with God that he wanted to build him a house. God's like, are you serious? I mean, great, we have this relationship, but I'm God. So I'm not sure how much lumber you've got. (laughs) But think about what you're saying here, David. And these words, these first five verses of the psalm, recall David's passion to do that, to build a house for the Lord. He has his house. Jerusalem is secure. Things have quieted down. The Ark of the Covenant is even up on Mount Moriah in David's tabernacle. We've got to do something more, David's thinking to himself. And you can read the story in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But God says to David, you can't build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. I am going to establish your house. And he declares in 2 Samuel chapter 7 what we call the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant, which to Christians is huge, is vital to understand and to be aware of. And Psalm 132 discusses this. But if you go back, don't do it right now, just listen. 2 Samuel 7 verse 12, God says, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. Remember Jesus Christ, descendant of David. I'm going to do this, God says. 2 Samuel 7.13 He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now on the surface, people might read that and think, well, is he talking about Solomon? I'll raise him up after you. And And there are some things in that passage that sound like he's got to be talking about Solomon. And yet he's going to establish the throne of this kingdom forever. God is not talking about Solomon. He's talking about another son. And this prophetic promise leaps far beyond Solomon. leaps far beyond the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus knew that. He even furtively refers to Himself saying, Matthew 12, verse 6, something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. Matthew 12, 42. And I think that Solomon knew this himself. 
recognized that that Davidic covenant, that promise to his father, was not for him. Why? Because I think Solomon is the one who wrote this psalm. Psalm 132. And this psalm is declaring something beyond Solomon, and Solomon is the author. Kyle and Delich say Psalm 132 is suited to the mouth of Solomon. And if you read verse 6, he says, Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah, and we found it in the field of Ya'ar. We heard of it in Ephrathah, found it in the field of Ya'ar. Ya'ar is Kiriath-Jerim. It's where the Ark of the Covenant rested for 20 years after it had been, well, sent back by the Philistines, after it caused them hemorrhoidal tumors. I'm not kidding. You can't make this stuff up. They stole the ark, took it in battle, and they all started breaking out with not being able to sit down. And so they put it on a cart, and the cart just went right back into Israel. And the ark would rest there in Jar, in the fields of Kiriath-Jerim, after it was recovered. That's in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Ephrath is that same area. And this is also prophetic, because while this is literally where the ark went, Ephrathah, the field of Yar, Ephrathah, Ephrathah, does that sound familiar? You know where that is. That's Bethlehem. Bethlehem Ephrathah. The reason why it's called Bethlehem Ephrathah is because in Israel there's more than one Bethlehem, but there is only one Bethlehem Ephrathah. So God was very specific to make sure that when His Son was born on this earth, we knew the exact city, and not just one of many possibilities. Bethlehem Ephrathah was not the birthplace of Solomon. No, it was the birthplace of David and of Jesus. Let me just read this to you. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. As for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. He will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. And then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. And that is Mashiach, Jesus Christ. The great Micah prophecy of the birth of Jesus. That is what is being referred to here in verse 6. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. Found it in the field of Yahar. Verse 7, let us go to His dwelling place. Let us worship at His footstool. The son of David in the line of Nathan through Mary was himself born in Bethlehem. Luke chapter 2 tells the story. We'll probably be reading that story pretty quickly here in the next week or two. You know what's great about the story? I'll just side note here. You know who made that whole thing possible? I know the Lord did, but but who thought He was making the whole thing possible? Caesar Augustus Gloop. Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus. You know, while He's inconveniencing the world to quantify and qualify His glory, God was born in a manger because Joseph and Mary had to go to Bethlehem at the command of Caesar. I just love how God works things like that out. 
Let us go to His dwelling place. Let us worship at His footstool. I see shepherds worshiping. I see wise men worshiping before the infant Jesus. Verse 8. Arise, O Lord, to Your resting place. You and the ark of Your strength. Anyone know where that resting place is? It's Jerusalem. I'll tell you why in just a minute. Let Your priests... Note this, be clothed with righteousness. And let your godly ones sing for glory. Joyful singing priests clothed in righteousness. Solomon writing this psalm, what's he doing? Well, two things. One is he's simply casting a vision for the temple priests of his day. Y'all need to be clothed in righteousness and sing joyfully. That's your role. But through Solomon, God is casting a prophecy, a prophetic promise. Peter picks up on this. 1 Peter 2, verse 9, saying, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. This is my gospel. And it being my good news, I'm a royal priest. Jump back, Jack. I am clothed with a robe of righteousness, Isaiah declares. I sing joyfully. Revelation chapter 1 verse 6 says, He has made us a kingdom, priests to His God and Father, to Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Let your godly ones sing for joy. Verse 10, For the sake of David your servant, do not turn away the face of your Messiah. Anointed one. Mashiach. Oh, the Lord has sworn to David. Remember David, Lord, is what's being said in verse 10. Remember David, Lord. By the way, verses 8 through 10, you can mark this in your Bibles, is a direct quote of 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 41 and 42, which is Solomon's dedication service for the temple. And that's how we know that this psalm is written by Solomon. He dedicated the temple, he wrote this psalm. But again, we hear prophecy. The glorious rise of the Messiah, the anointed one of God. Again, verse 11, the the Lord has sworn to David, a truth from which he will not turn back, of the fruit of your body I will set upon your throne. And that is Jesus. And by the way, that is an unconditional promise. God told David, I'm going to do this. He didn't ask anything of David in return. I will do this. What about verse 12, Pastor? Well, let's look at that. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony which I will teach them, their sons shall also sit on your throne forever. That's conditional. But don't confuse the two. Verse 12 is a conditional promise. If your sons, David, will do this, they will sit on the throne as well. They will rule. They will reign. Well, guess what? They didn't do it. Follow the line of the kings. Look at the kings in Judah alone. And many of them failed miserably. The covenant with David, unconditional, not based on anything any man or woman could ever do, verse 11. Covenant uh, with his sons was conditional. Did I say con- The covenant with David was unconditional. Underscore. Unconditional. And the covenant with his sons, conditional. Based on their keeping and remembering God's 
covenant. All that to say that the sons of of David failed miserably. They didn't keep their end, and so they were thrown out. They stopped ruling. They were done. That doesn't change God's unilateral, unconditional promise to David. And I keep harping on this because sometimes we think our behavior can change God's decision. When God makes a promise, He keeps it. Whether we keep it or not, that's that's our issue. But this covenant that He made to David to set upon His throne, ultimately resulting in Jesus Christ, was absolute. And no man or woman or child could, could fault this or destroy it by our own behavior. Of the fruit of your body, I will do this. I will set upon the throne, and on the throne He says, Jesus. For the Lord, watch this, verse 13, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it. For His habitation, this is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. Back up in verse 8. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. That's why I say the resting place is Jerusalem. Because down in verse 13, the Lord's chosen Zion. Zion is Jerusalem. God has chosen Jerusalem. He has desired it for His resting place. And I was asked again this week, and I've been asked this many times, why is Jerusalem so important? What's the big deal with Jerusalem? We already made mention of this Wednesday night. But you know, if you were watching the news, what happened on Wednesday? That our president declared, recognized at least, Jerusalem to be the capital of Israel. First president to do that since Israel became a nation in 1948. Changing decades of foreign policy and oh, the State Department is miffed. (laughs) How dare he fire off his mouth and do something that of course is going to cause unrest. Of course people are going to be upset This is going to throw the whole peace process right on its head. Excuse me, what peace process? Have we we seen anything work in 70 years? And I'll tell you what, whatever you may think of President Trump and his policies, he is absolutely right on this issue. Jerusalem is Israel's capital. Why? Because God desires it. Because He has chosen it. Because He says, that's my resting place and forever. I'm not even sure, honestly, if President Trump realizes what he's done. (laughs) How eternally huge this issue is. He directed the State Department to begin preparations to move our embassy from Tel Aviv up to Jerusalem. So far, guess what? That's a baby step. It's an intention. It's a good intention. It it needs some follow-through. And I'm watching to see if he's going to follow through because you don't want to mess with God. You don't want to play around with something like this. And the truth is, on Wednesday, we could have raised our American flag over our consulate office in Jerusalem and said, done and done. And we didn't do that. We didn't recognize our embassy there yet. Oh, we got to find a place. And then we got to pull in the contractors. We need to call Paul Schwartz and see if he can do some architectural designs. 
and then get this ball rolling. You know how long it took to build this building? Can you imagine? The red tape? Hey, God says in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 6, I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there. That's why Jerusalem matters. That's why it's important. Verse 15, I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her needy with bread. Her priests also I will clothe with salvation. Her godly ones will sing aloud for joy. And he says in verse 17, There I will cause the horn of David. The horn speaks of the anointing, which is the authority. The God-given, God-established authority for David to be king. I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed. That is Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ? Descendant of David. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall shine. On his head, we're told, Revelation 19.12, are many diadems, many crowns. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 32, an angel named Gabriel said to Mary, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. And of himself, Jesus Christ said, Revelation 22.16, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David. Go back to 2 Timothy now. According, Paul says, to my gospel. We could spend more time in verse 8. And I encourage you to do so, to dig even further for the riches that can be mined from the single statement. But Paul says, oh, just remember Jesus Christ. I mean, that's the key to the whole thing. His descendancy, His ascendancy, all of that is part of remembering Jesus. And now what Paul does in this small section is summarize verse 8 with a beautiful stanza. Quite possibly an early church hymn. We can't know it for certain, but I tell you what we do know for certain. Verses 11 through 13, which are the summary of verse 8, are the last trustworthy statement of Paul. Well, I'm not saying that he's not going to say anything else that's worth trusting. But there are five times in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, Titus, 2 Timothy, five times where Paul says, this is a trustworthy statement, deserving of full acceptance, he often adds. Five times he makes this comment. I encourage you to go look those up. We're not going to do it this morning. It's 1 Timothy 1.15. 1 Timothy 3.1. 1 Timothy 4.9. And Titus 3.8. Those are the first four. And then finally in this letter, verse 11 of 2 Timothy 2, it is a trustworthy statement. And he does this in verses 11 through 13. We'll end with this today because it so suitably ties together 
the gospel concentrate of verse 8. It is a trustworthy statement. Watch this. If we died with Him, we will also live with Him. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. If we died with Him, we will live with Him. He rose from the dead, we will rise from the dead. It's a beautiful confirmation. Remember Jesus risen from the dead and you will rise with Him. Verse 12. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. Oh, remember Jesus Christ, descendant of David, and you will reign with Him. See what Paul's just beautifully done? But, there's a warning that gets inserted right here in verse 12. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. I read that and think, Paul, it was such a beautiful hymn. And then you throw that one in there. If we deny Him, He'll deny us. Done. Out. Gone. Clean out your locker. Your history. And that's the one little statement in this hymn that I've always just... I cringe. I really do. Personally, I go, oh, I don't want to talk about the denial part. Let's just talk... Let's go back to the other part. And Paul will. But if we deny Him, He will deny us. Boy, I'm glad Jesus never said something like that. Matthew 10.32 Everyone who confesses me to be four men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. Marvelous, wonderful. But, he says, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Why does he say that? You know in your heart, first of all, when you've denied someone. I mean, you know. Jesus is always 100% genuine. He does not play games. He does not manipulate. He doesn't mess with your head. Love Him or don't. Own the good news or flat out deny it. Don't try to play the middle. Don't manipulate God. Remember Jesus Christ according to my Gospel. You keep it faithfully. It's yours given to you. And if you do, if you remember Jesus Christ, you will remain with Him forever. You'll rise with Him, verse 11. You'll reign with Him, verse 12. And you will remain with Him, verse 13, if you will just hold on to Him, if you will just remember Him. And that's why it says, if you deny Me, I will deny you. I want you to know right up front, this is not a guessing game. It's not like so many other religions. If you do just enough. If you cover yourself, or maybe you can play around with it, or maybe you can stand before God and plead your case. No, if you've denied me, you're not going in. You deny me, I'll deny you. That's the way it works. But if you confess me, I will confess you. And it's a promise that remains. And we read something like that and think, oh man... What if I falter? More good news. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. He says, Jesus is the true fulfillment and visible expression of God's faithfulness. The ultimate proof that God does not forget either a person or a promise. He remembers. He knows if you've confessed Him. You know if you've confessed Him. And so Paul says, remember Jesus Christ. 
You don't need a string around your finger to Uncle Bailey you out. I really wasn't sure if I was going to say that, but but to try it with you all, second service, maybe they'll get a pass. Here's the whole thing. Listen. You can forget everything else in your life. But remember Jesus Christ. Think on Him. Be mindful of Him. And you will rise and you will reign and you will remain with Him forever. Father, we say Amen to that. We say Amen. We remember Jesus Christ, who we know. And that's the exciting thing to me. I, I Truly... Considering this, you know this, Lord. I'm not telling you anything new, but the last couple of days, just thinking about you and remembering all the things that we've done together. Remembering the words you've spoken to me. Remembering the scriptures you've unlocked. Remembering that you have always been there. Father, I can go back years and I remember you, Jesus, because you have been here. I remember you, Lord, because... I know You. I remember You because I trust You, because You have never failed, because You have never let me down. And yes, I remember You rose from the dead, though I wasn't there. I know because I know You now. And I remember You are the descendant of David because Your Word declares it, and You declared it, and You have spoken that to my heart. And I remember all this, and it is... It's my gospel. It's my good news, Lord. I remember you. This morning, Lord, help us remember. Not an historical figure. Not a fictional character. But Lord Jesus, help us remember you. In Jesus' name, amen.